Mayo Clinic has written a little bit about compulsive hoarding syndrome. According to Mayo Clinic, hoarding is the excessive collection of items along with the inability to discard them. Hoarding often creates such cramped living conditions that homes may be filled to capacity with only narrow pathways winding through stacks of clutter. Some people also collect animals, keeping dozens or hundreds of pets in unsanitary conditions. Uh, Then two sentences stood out to me from this piece on uh, mayoclinic.com. The first, people who hoard often don't see it as a problem making treatment challenging. Everybody else sees it as a problem. It's very clear, but the, the hoarder often doesn't see it as a problem. And then the second uh, sentence is this. Researchers are working to better understand hoarding as a distinct mental health problem. A distinct mental health problem. Compulsive hoarding syndrome. Um, when I read that, I thought to myself, well, there's definitely a, a mental health component to this. There's definitely a psychological, emotional health component to this. And, and when I read this and saw that, I wondered if there was a spiritual component a spiritual component. Um, a dimension that, have, that, that is in play on a spiritual, a spiritual level. That's what I see when I look at someone in the New Testament who struggled with... Um, Compulsive hoarding syndrome. The person that I'm thinking of is in the New Testament book of Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And I want us to take a look at that passage of Scripture this morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, I'd like you to turn there. And um, you'll find... Luke 12 on page 737 of your church Bibles. Um, so if you, have, if you don't have a Bible, there's a navy blue Bible um, in the pouch in front of you. So just turn to 737. You'll find Luke chapter 12. And we're going to talk about someone who had, uh, on a spiritual level, a compulsive hoarding syndrome. And... And and as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're going to see what I want us to do. I want us to take a look at. uh, I want us to take a look at the setting. This passage of Scripture, if you're glancing in your Bible, you'll see that it is subtitled in some of your Bibles the parable of the rich fool. Well, we're going to look at we're going to look at the parable this morning, but. But I want us to first see the reason for the parable. I want us to look at the, the story behind the story. All right? So we're going to look at the story behind the story. Then we're going to look at the story. And then we're going to look at one lesson that defines and describes 
and informs us about both stories. That's kind of where we're going this morning. And what we're going to see, church family, is that in terms of this compulsive hoarding sin, we're going to see that it is possible, it is, it is, it's possible to have money and possessions and not be a hoarder. We're going to see that as we look at these verses. And we're also going to see as we look at these verses that it is possible to have no money whatsoever and be a hoarder. (laughs) Oh yeah, that's what we'll see as we look in these verses in Luke 12, um, 13. Now, before I read this, before we go through this, I I need your eyes up here, okay? Uh, Please uh, look up here. Now, um, I showed this video... And I'm sharing with you about this compulsive hoarding syndrome. I'm doing that at, at, at somewhat of a risk. Um, I have, this issue is relevant in our community. I've been in homes in our community that's been like this. I used to serve uh, in a volunteer capacity with the fire department. And uh, it, it's called the Emergency Services Support Team, which is, you know, a.k.a. Um, chaplaincy. And so we would be invited to homes to help uh, give support and uh, give even um, pastoral care to those who've, uh, you know, their homes have been engulfed in flames or there's been an emergency going on in their lives or there's a problem, uh, death notification, just things that a volunteer pastoral care or support would would. Would, would help. I've been in these types of situations. So, so listen, I am not here to try to gang tackle anybody who has this issue, or maybe you know someone who has this issue, or maybe you're here and you have this issue. Here's, here's my angle on this. This is, and this is very important to remember. Christ, people sometimes criticize Christianity because they, they say, well, you know, if I become a Christian, Christianity puts people in a moral straitjacket. And, 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 you know, if I become a Christian, uh, you know, I won't be able to make my own decisions. It'll, it'll be sort of like entering, you know, it'll, it'll be sort of like entering a heavenly North Korea. And it's just going to, you know, bind me. And, and uh, we, you know, in our pluralistic culture, people really need to be free to choose for themselves how to live. And the only truly authentic life is to choose for yourself. But here's the deal. And here's what you need to understand. What's going on and what we saw there is the fruit of someone who is choosing for themselves. See, the fact of the matter is, all of us are slaves to something. We gather in this room enslaved to something. And some of us are enslaved to possessions. Some of us are enslaved to power. Some of us are enslaved to um, uh, sex. Some of us are enslaved to titles. Uh, um, We're all slaves to something. Even, Even folks who... You know, you live for something, and whatever our ultimate meaning is, that's our master. And everyone is a slave. And even the most independent people are dependent on their independence. So we come to this room enslaved. And, and so, therefore, what we're going to see today is not what, what is being offered in the Bible is not absolute emancipation. What is offered is a better master. A better master. So with that in mind, we consider... The younger brother's request in Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, someone, we'll see who that is. I just said the younger brother, we'll meet him in a moment. In the crowd said to him, who's him? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. 
Jesus. Jesus is the answer to every question uh, in this church. Um, Where's the water fountain? Jesus. That's (laughs) teacher. Someone in the crowd said to him, so there's a crowd. If you glance back up to verse 1, there are thousands in the crowd. Many thousands in the crowd. Many thousands had gathered. And so Jesus is teaching and I mean, in the middle of his teaching, someone kind of just belches out this, it's not a request, it was somewhat of a demand. I've never had that happen to me in the foyer or here in this room, teaching away. Someone stands, Randy, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Haven't gotten that one yet. Okay, don't really care to, by the way. Okay. Jesus didn't really care to either, did he? Did he? But first, why would he, why would he even say this? Why would we say this, teacher? Well, because in that day, the uh, Hebrew rabbis would often issue rulings from the Hebrew Bible, and there were inheritance rulings. And so, so this younger brother, and we know that it's a younger brother, and here's why. The father has evidently died, and there's no will, and when that happened, automatically, the elder brother kind of uh, uh, took custody of the estate. Automatically. So, so we know it's not an elder brother, it's a younger brother. Those younger brothers. Those younger brothers, right? Parable of the prodigal son. Those younger... Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. Now, you know, we don't know... If it's good or bad that the elder brother hasn't divided, which means that the elder brother would have received twice as much as all the other siblings. We don't know if there's any other siblings, uh, but if there's just two, the elder brother would receive twice as much, meaning the elder brother would receive two-thirds of the estate, the younger brother would receive one-third of the estate, and the younger brother wants his cut, and for whatever reason, good or bad, the elder brother has not divided. So this Younger brother wants what's his, and Jesus just refuses. Man, that's rather terse, mind you. He doesn't say friend. He doesn't say brother. He says, man, who, man, who appointed me? To, I have not been appointed to do this, to, uh, to be a judge or arbiter between you. You see, you see several reasons. Where's the elder brother, by the way? We don't know. So it's just the younger brother that came up. And the younger brother, he doesn't want justice. He doesn't want a fair ruling. He wants Jesus to rubber stamp what he has pre-decided. Do we sometimes do that? We want Jesus to rubber stamp a decision that we've already made ahead of time. Oh, Jesus is not, he's not going to hear that case. And many Hebrew rabbis wanted to hear cases like this. That's just kind of what they did. In fact, history tells us that there was a Hebrew rabbi who was a contemporary of Jesus who uh, lived in the northern Galilee area, and he evidently wasn't getting enough of these kinds of cases, and so he moved down to Jerusalem where there would be more traffic. And so Jesus is is the person to talk to, I guess, but Jesus is not going to listen to this case. He's not going to hear it because the guy's already made up his mind. It's not like the younger brother said, Jesus... My brother and I, there is something that's going to divide our family and relationship, and it threatens to divide us. 
and that we both need help. And so would you please be willing to come and listen to him and then listen to me and then we promise we will submit to whatever it is you say. That's not what we read here. Rubber stamp my verdict, Jesus. And Jesus says no. He kind of puts Christ on the spot, right? Jesus then puts him on the spot. No, I'm not going to hear your case. And then he speaks to the crowd as a whole, right? Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In verse 15, Jesus, first of all, defines greed, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Define, did you see the definition there? Greed is when who I am is what I have. Who I am is what, who I am is the sum of my stuff, my possessions, uh, my job, my corner office, my uh, credentials. Who I am is what I have. And if you buy into that, then then it just naturally follows. If who I am is what I have, then I need more. I need newer. I need better. I need faster. Who I am is what I have, so I need... I need and, and, and secondly, then, Jesus says, watch out. So greed is, when, greed is when we conclude that who I am is what I have. And Jesus mentions in verse 15 how, how stealthy the sin of greed is. That's why he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. All kinds of greed. Beware. Beware. Why would he say that? Because of how stealthy, how, how difficult it is to detect the sin of greed in our hearts and in our lives. Someone once said that, that it is difficult to see greed in the mirror. Now, I can see it in your mirror. I can see it in your heart. It's very clear to me. Oh, yeah. I can see greed in your mirror, but see, I can't see it in mine. It's virtually impossible to see, you know? And so it's the, so it's the, I mean, Jesus doesn't say, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of robbery, because we know when we're committing the sin of robbery. Hello? Be on your guard against all kinds of adultery. No, we know when we're doing that. That's rather clear. But it's not clear. Greed is not clear here. No, no, no. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And that's why, that's why this younger brother, that's why this younger brother was committing the sin of greed and he didn't have anything because the, he didn't have his inheritance, right? That's why I said earlier, while you can, you can have possessions and not commit the sin of greed, you can also not have a thing and commit the sin of greed. Well, that's the story before the story. Okay, now here's the story. That's why Jesus told the story, the parable. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Those rich farmers. <laughs> The ground of a certain rich man. Now, he was already rich. He already had extra. And you know, what is extra anyway? Extra is when I have more than I need. Right? So, so he's a certain rich farmer who has, he already has extra. And now he has extra, extra. 
because the ground produced a good crop. It was just one of those bumper crop years when the yield was high and the prices was high. And I mean, he's already, he's already wealthy and now he's got wealth on top of his wealth. He's got extra on top of his extra. He's got surplus on top of his surplus. Over and above is over and above. Wow, what a blessing from God. Now what should he do with that? You and I know what he should do with that. You know, and because we can see what's going on in it, but he can't see it, right? Because you can't see greed in the mirror. Verse 17 says, he thought to himself, literally, that literally says, he dialogued with himself. And one Bible teacher says that that is one of, this is one of the saddest verses in this entire passage of Scripture, and here's why. In the Middle East, in village people in the Middle East, which Probably this would have, the, the, the amount of people in this room right here might have, might have consisted of a, of a village. And in that village, everybody knew everybody's business. Everyone, and so when someone had a windfall, everybody would know about it. And so the person who received the windfall, they would have friends, they would have trusted individuals to whom that they would visit in order to get counsel and wisdom on what to do with this unexpected blessing from God. But what about this guy? There's no one. He doesn't have anybody to talk with. He doesn't have anybody to have a very important conversation with. Why? Because he seems to have isolated himself and secluded himself. And isn't that true whether we're talking about first century Israel or 21st century America? Would you not agree with me if I said that wealth tends to cause people to drift into isolation? And we get caller ID and we get you know, we want privacy and we have build up gates and we, we begin. Listen to this fascinating verse in, in Isaiah 5, 8, which is, set, you know, five, six centuries before Christ. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. What's that? That's someone, that's this person here. They bought everybody out, and they've got kind of, kind of huddled up and hunkered down, and they've got it all to themselves, and what shall I do? I've got no place to store my crops. We know what he should do. We know he should share. But that's not what happens, is it? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. I mean, that's what, that's what I'm going to do. When the basement gets full, I build a bigger basement. That's what I do. Verse 19 says, then, but, you know, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things. He's talking to himself. Man, big mistake talking to yourself. You have plenty of good things. See, he was wealthy, but he didn't know why he was wealthy. Plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. He's talking himself into disaster. See, he thought that the length of his life equaled the abundance of his possessions. That's what he thought. I'm going to live a long life because I have a bunch of stuff. Huh? Huh? Augustine was a pastor, a preacher in the 4th and 5th centuries. And he preached on this passage. 
Augustine once said, my soul is restless until it finds rest in thee. Well, not this fella in Luke 12. This fella thought, my soul is restless until it finds an overabundance of food and drink. And, uh, and friends, that's still going on today. It's still going on today. I, I came across a fascinating and sad article this week. Bear with me here. This is, this is worth hearing. It's titled, A Cold Calculus Leads Cryonauts. A Cold Calculus Leads Cryonauts to Put Assets on Ice. Okay? Subtitled, With Bodies Frozen, They Hope to Return Richer. Dr. Thorpe is Buying Long. Listen to this. You can't take it with you, so Arizona resort operator David Pizer has a plan to come back and get it. Like some thousand other members of the cryonics movement, Mr. Pizer has made arrangements to have his body frozen in liquid nitrogen as soon as possible after he dies. In this way, Mr. Pizer, a heavy-set philosophical man who is 64 years old, hopes to be revived sometime in the future when medicine has advanced far beyond where it stands today. And because Mr. Pizer doesn't wish to return a pauper, he's taken an additional step. He's left his money to himself. With the help of an estate planner, Mr. Pizer has created legal arrangements for a financial trust that will manage his roughly $10 million in land and stock holdings until he is reanimated. Mr. Pizer says that with his money earning interest while he is frozen, he could wake up in a hundred years the richest man in the world. I mean, I am not making this up. There are articles here, right? Janice, I made a dozen of them. I don't know how many took them first. I mean, it's just, it's interesting reading over lunch today. I mean, wow, millions, millions. And, 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 if this is a one world universe, okay, he's pretty smart. If it's just this world, if it's just this life, this, this guy is dead on, so to speak. <laughs> but what if, it, what if there's two worlds? What if there's this life and then the next? What if? What if? How shall, this, how, shall, how shall he and others like him be judged? Huh? Well, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. You fool. This, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What's the answer to that question, by the way? Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? What's the answer to that? Well, the answer is this. Someone else. That's the answer. Someone else. Someone else. Someday, someone else will get all you got. And it's not because you're generous. It's because you're dead. 
and uh, and this wealthy person was foolish. He made four very foolish mistakes. I mean, as as blessed as he was, he made four foolish mistakes. Foolish mistake number one: he assumed that his life equaled his possessions. He assumed, "I am my stuff." That's foolish mistake number one. Foolish mistake number two, he assumed that he had control over his crop. See, he, he assumed, I am my stuff, and then secondly, I am the source of my stuff, and that's not true at all. He did not control his crop. In fact, the Bible doesn't even say that he made money. What does it say? What does it say? Look, it says, the ground produced a good crop. He didn't produce it. He had no control over the weather or the rain or the sun or the insects or the locusts. He was not the source of his extra God was. Foolish mistake number three. He thought that he controlled the length of his life. And foolish mistake, the most severe, I believe. Number four, he thought he owned his own life. He discovered belatedly that not only were his possessions on loan, but his very life was on loan. And that night, God called the loan. And, and, and the worst of it all was just not that, not that he just hoarded his stuff, but that he had hoarded his life. Because there, the fact is there were gifts and abilities and talents that contributed to to the blessing, but he just, he, he wasted that. And, and verse 21, Jesus says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. This, what's this? What's this? This is total and complete loss. Why? Because someone else got all that he owned and he had absolutely nothing to show for it in the life to come. He, he thought that after he was done storing up all of his over and above his over and above that his responsibilities were over. But from God's point of view, his responsibilities were just beginning. But this guy defaulted and he missed the opportunity in this life to be rich towards God. And, and, and going back to Augustine, when he preached on this passage of scripture, this is what he said. He said that the rich fool did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his barns. And it's kind of like Jesus goes back now to the brother. Remember, this, is the, this was the story to talk to this younger brother. And he's saying, hey, fella, man, you got bigger problems than your brother. You... you your, your, question, your biggest question is not who gets the inheritance. Your, your biggest question needs to be who's getting my heart? Who's got your heart? I mean, and, and, and can the point of this be any clearer? Can it be any clearer, church family? <laughs> when you give to those in need, when you give to those in need, giving to those in need will kill the sin of greed. That's the point. That's the point. I mean, greed is real. And, it, and it's, the, it's a silent, stealthy killer. But giving kills the sin of greed. 
It kills the sin of greed. When you give to those in need, you kill the sin of greed. Have you done some, have you done some killing lately? Have you? Yeah, that's what we're looking at here. When you give to those in need, you kill the sin of greed. Now, what does that look like in real life? What does that look like? Well, corporately, this is why we're doing the weekend of service. We are becoming intentional about giving because God has blessed us over and above our over and above. And so this is why we want you to sign up. And this is why we want you to be involved next Saturday and Sunday. And we want to put the truth into play by being rich, by being rich to God, by helping and meeting needs with love and and so instead of asking him to finance our story, we, we're entering into his story. And corporately. And I'm so excited to tell you that, uh, and you've heard that some of the project sites have, uh, have been filled. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, uh, Macy, the Muhammad Area Youth Club. I, I uh, had some information I wanted to share with you about that. Um, just go out in the foyer. <laughs> okay. Uh, we need some help with the single mom's respite still. And that's next week. And so uh, we want to, as a church family, we want to put the church and put the truth into play by being rich to those in need. And that's what it looks like. That's why we're doing this. But let me tell you individually, personally, personally, if you want to put this into play in your life, in your marriage, in your household, it looks like a prioritized spending plan. That's what it looks like. I wish you could go to Financial Peace University and, and learn about budgeting and giving and spending and being a steward. I'll give you the 101 version of it right here in about a minute and a half. It's called, I call it the 10-10-80 plan. That's baseline. The 10, 10, 80 plan. God, God wants me to be rich to him to the tune of 10%. That's the biblical baseline. Before I start funding my kingdoms, I'm going to fund God's kingdom to the tune of 10%. And then I'm going to be rich toward myself. That is, I'm going I'm to the tune of 10%. And that's for the future. I, I call it my, my, my uh, freedom fund. It's for retirement. And then, and then I'm going to live off the rest. All right, And then as my income grows, then I can give more than 10% or I can save more than 10%. And, and when God grows my standard of living, then that means that I can just grow my standard of giving, you see. And when we begin thinking like that and thinking as a steward, but you see what happens, church family, is that we often chase an income with our lifestyle and that creates an artificial need. And then when disaster strikes, we want to cut a deal with God and then write, you know, a, a $20 check to a walkathon, and we do that out of guilt and emotion. And we say, wow, I'm generous. Well, no, you're not because your lifestyle has not been impacted by your generosity because the assumption is the extra is for me. And then you try to eke out a $50 contribution. But when you become a percentage priority giver, you plan your giving, and then the guilt is gone. And then when someone comes knocking at your door next Saturday morning asking for a donation to their cause, you can say one of two things. You can say, sure, I can support you because I have this set aside for this particular opportunity here. Or you can say, no, thank you. I appreciate you asking, but uh, my giving is spoken for. And because you have predecided, you have prioritized and planned ahead, 
then you have determined your lifestyle and not Madison Avenue or your next door neighbor or your co-worker or even your, the person in your circle of friends at church. Jesus says that money is a spiritual issue. Spending is a spiritual decision. And so he asked, what does God want me to do with my extra? Well, you know, what if I have more than I need? I already have enough. Maybe I should share. If I buy this, I'll have to maintain it, clean it, dust it, wash it, polish it, wax it, sweep it. Why should, well, you know, why should I be doing that when I can give this extra to someone else? That's why Jesus says here later on in Luke chapter 12, He says, don't be afraid, little flock, verse 32, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom, so sell your possessions and give to the poor. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, sell your possessions, and then you'll enter the kingdom. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, you give, and then you'll get the kingdom. No, 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 no. You don't, no, you, Jesus says, you are, God has already given you the kingdom. Now, act like heirs of the kingdom and share. This is not what saves you. This is what saved people do. And uh, when, I'm, when I think that way, then, then I, my attitude and my perspective, it, it becomes a two-world perspective, this life and the life to come. And when I give that way, then it breaks the idol of greed in my life. All kinds of giving breaks all kinds of greed. I got a letter from one of you today, or Wednesday, which illustrates this point. Listen to this. One Sunday morning, I was given a $20 bill by my mother. Do something fun, my mother said. This has been the most fun I've had with a $20 bill. I decided to give the $20 bill to my son who's in college and could use the gas money. So after I gave it to my son... I arrived home, and there was a birthday card in the mail for me, and inside the card was $20. I thought to myself, well, God just replaced the $20 that I gave to my son. So I then decided I was going to put the second $20 bill in the offering plate. Just keep giving it away, I said. So I did, and when I returned home after church, I found a $20 bill sitting on top of my microwave. This is odd because I rarely use cash, and I know I didn't have $20. So I remembered that I owed a friend $20 and gave it to her. And when I got to work on Tuesday, my boss had a little birthday gift for me. You guessed it, a $20 bill. So I knew God wanted me to continue what he had started. So I prayed about it. And led, that led me to someone who needed to be reminded and told for the first time that God loved her. So I sent an anonymous note telling her how much God loved her and that this was a very small reminder of how much. And now I can't wait for my next $20 bill to see where God leads me with it. Huh? Randy, I have been able to give $20 to four different people and it all came from one $20 bill. (laughs) That's God. Isn't it? And I get to worship in the same church as this saint. Wow. That's That's my blessing. This person gets it. Do, can we say that? Do we get it? Now, see, the fact of the matter is, church, God's given us a lot more than $20. He's given us a life. It's not, it's, it's not our lives, it's his. Our lives are on loan. And he's given us the life of his son. Jesus said, 
on the cross. Take my life into your hands. I commit my spirit. Jesus said, take my hands and my feet. And they were taken and nailed to the cross. And then Jesus said, take my lips. And, and when he did, he said, Father, forgive them. And he used his life to, to purchase us, to redeem us, so that we may belong to the kingdom. And, and now we have his life. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. See? And so now it's his life, it's not our life. And that's on loan. That's on loan. Our hands, our feet, our lips, our abilities, our gifts, our talents. And so, and so that's why next week we're going to cancel church in order to be the church. And in the end, someone else is going to get all of it. Really, someone else. But right now, right now it's, it's entrusted to us. It's in our custody for a limited amount of time and a limited amount of opportunity to glorify God with it. Oh, church family, please, please. When we give to those in need, such cross-bearing giving will kill the sin of greed. Let's kill some greed this week.